those that are vaccinated are 29 times less likely to go to hospital and um, you're much less likely to be admitted into intensive care and much less likely to die. Today on Dirty Linen, we are not talking to a restaurateur or somebody who works in hospitality. We are talking to an epidemiologist. Professor Mary Louise McClaws has been one of the really most consistent and to my mind, the most uh, considered and yeah, satisfying voices around the pandemic. And I'm really thrilled to welcome her back to Dirty Linen. Thank you so much for making the time for us, Mary Louise. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. I think the last time that we had you on the podcast, it was uh, almost a year ago as Melbourne was reopening after lockdown number two. And it, I mean, we knew there were still challenges ahead, but it's, I certainly didn't anticipate that Melbourne and Sydney would be really in the thick of it uh, a year later. Did you think that this could happen? I mean, did you anticipate this long grind? Is that just what pandemics are like? Pandemics do have a long goodbye, but I, um, I didn't think it would be this excruciatingly difficult because we were um, we did so well with non-Delta, uh, and I think the the difficulty has been with Delta completely. I mean, even when uh, Victoria had Kappa with a couple of cases of Delta, they dealt with it really, really well. But you've got to get in there eh, ASAP. Um, Otherwise, uh, Delta gets away with you because it has an incubation period that's two days shorter, which basically means that um, a case is more contagious earlier on and actually a thousand, probably a thousand times more contagious in that you've, on average, uh, developing a thousand times more viral load than with them with any other strain. And so it basically makes it very difficult not to catch it. Um, so you've got all of these things. You've got the R naught of six, the people who have got uh, a higher viral load um, which and a shorter incubation period. Uh, and therefore, it's very difficult to tr- for uh, contact tracers just to keep up with everything. So uh, that um, means that we're dealing with a totally different um, uh, warrior. The, it, this is not pre-Delta. This is not Alpha. This is not the Wuhan strain. So um, it, we should have had an inkling about what we were going to experience with England having um, had Delta since uh, early in the year and struggling uh, with trying to contain it. And then America seeing that the um, number, the proportion of samples that went up from non-Delta to Delta in two weeks doubled. And then all of a sudden in a matter of a couple of months, it Delta was the dominant strain. So we had plenty of warning. It's just that we didn't expect it to leak so easily with one uh, staff member, uh, sadly, inadvertently leaking it because he wasn't tested and he wasn't vaccinated. Uh, It just, it it doesn't... uh, 
the what ifs are not very helpful in, I suppose, in this pandemic. Hopefully they will be helpful with whatever challenge strikes us next. Uh, but now it really feels like, you know, we're in lockdown, cases are still going up in both Melbourne and Sydney and it really does seem like the only race now is to vaccinate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sadly, that honeymoon period where we had zero cases, I mean, even think about it, um, December last year, uh, America, the UK, Israel and other countries were starting to vaccinate and um, we weren't. We had small lockdown in the northern beaches. Uh, then we had a lockdown, of course, in Victoria. And then they came through. Lockdown was lifted and that's when we should have gone hell for leather in vaccinating everybody um, as, you know, a, um, a warning for this, this could happen again and again and again, so let's get everybody vaccinated. So if we do have a leak, it doesn't go very far because not everybody will be uh, unprotected, mm. but we didn't. So there were, there were a lot of reasons why, and, and sadly we still aren't going hell for leather yet or um, particularly the under 40s uh, are not yet fully vaccinated at a high enough level. Well, you've long spoken about the importance of vaccinating younger Australians and, you know, this podcast goes out to a lot of people in hospitality and people who love restaurants. So many hospitality workers are in that, you know, under 40 age group. Do you think that there should be more of an effort that's particularly aimed at this age group or indeed should they be a priority group that is, you know, like year 12 students perhaps are given, uh, you know, first run at the appointments? Oh, look, I think uh, having having year 12 students as a priority was, I think, a very political statement rather than an economic statement. The economic statement, and I'm not an economist, but even as a, an epidemiologist, you, the, the economic statement should have been those that are of working age that haven't had um, the ability to have uh, access to the vaccine. And they were the under 40s. It was obvious last year we knew, not just in Australia, but the rest of the world, that the majority of cases were in the 20 to 39 year olds. So, um, gosh, 40% of our cases last year were in the 20 to 49 year olds. That was the highest proportion uh, for an age group. It it was remarkable. And now, in uh, with Delta, the last time I looked at um, age breakdown in New South Wales, the 20 to 39-year-olds were mm, 39% of all cases and the 19 and younger were 30%. So 69% of all cases are under 40. Now, the government interprets that as, but that's great because very few of them go to hospital. Well, I just remind them that um, third of all admissions to hospital, uh, last time I looked at the age groups, were in the 20 to 39. Now, they're not in ICU very frequently, but they were in a hospital because Delta is not nice. It hits you like you've been hit by a truck, and then you can, of course, get um, respiratory distress. And that's often why people go to the emergency department and they can be admitted for observation for a while. So the getting back to the economy and getting back to even just controlling the outbreak, 
those that acquire it most are your um, priority for reducing acquisition and transmission of infection. And that's the 20 to 39 year olds should have been the first priority because they also work and they could get back to work. And then the under 20s are your second priority. So the, the over 40s have had plenty of time to access the vaccine. Now, I know they got a bit anxious about AstraZeneca, but if there are any listening, I'd tell them there's a great study out from Catalonia that says that other than um, myocarditis and pericarditis in young men with uh, Pfizer, and that's very, very rare, and they can't quite determine any causation between Pfizer and that because it does occur with other respiratory infections, um, all other serious adverse events are similar between Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And um, the, the group that are at greatest risk of dying need to get whatever vaccine is available into their arms as soon as possible. So right now, the priority group is to stop transmission and spread, and that's your 20 to 39-year-olds. So can you just say just really clearly, because there is so much confusion and wariness about AstraZeneca, would you say that anyone, anyone really should consider getting it? Yes, anybody should uh, consider, uh, if you can't get Pfizer, get AstraZeneca. It'll stop you from dying and it will stop you from getting severe infection. And then I um, predict that all of us who've had AstraZeneca, including myself, um, will then be offered um, a messenger RNA var um, vaccine as a booster. And we'll eventually be mixing and matching, but not right now. So uh, if you're finding it impossible to get um, a, um, an appointment for your um, for Pfizer, please go and get your AstraZeneca at the, the local pharmacy uh, because I, I don't want you to die. I don't want you getting long COVID, and that's very unpredictable. At the moment, a lot of people say, oh, look, it's mostly people with severe infection get long COVID, but I would suggest that a lot of that assumption is what we call follow-up bias. So if you're in hospital, you're followed up more than if you were not in hospital and therefore it would look as if uh, you're more likely to get long COVID than uh, if you were not hospitalised. Mm. So um, don't don't risk it. Yeah, that makes sense. And just to be even clearer, if you could get a Pfizer appointment in a month or an AstraZeneca dose tomorrow, what should people do? Now, that's a very difficult question because um, how good are you at using your mask? If you're in your leisure gear and you're walking the dog or you're going for a walk with a household member and you're talking, you need to wear your mask. You have to wear your mask unless you're running. And if you go for a run, run around a park, go, get away from people. So if you think you can wear your mask, really 100% of the time when you leave home and that whoever you're sharing your household with 
does the same thing, then sure, wait for a month. If you think that's unlikely, then please get AstraZeneca. Now, I wrote uh, with the help of um, the um, ARC students at the University of New South Wales, a, um, an information sheet. And we identified that your risk of a blood clot with AstraZeneca is one in two million. And you know what your risk of um, death with after a bee sting <laughs> is, is one in 59,507. So let's round it up to 60,000. Right. So you're more likely to die from a bee sting um, than from a, a blood clot with AstraZeneca. If you take uh, the combined oral contraceptive pill, you're at more risk. You're one in 5,000 of getting a clot. If you go on a long haul flight, which we all dream about one day, you've got a risk of developing a blood clot at one in 60,000. So please do not worry your, yourself overly about AstraZeneca. It's a great vaccine. And if you, if you are not in a hot spot, and if you think that you can rely on all your housemates doing the right thing and not bringing it home, then sure, wait for your Pfizer. And the reason I say that is um, Pfizer has a greater vaccine efficacy for reducing the risk of symptomatic COVID, which then reduces the risk of you developing a high viral load and therefore, you know, you're not going to spread it. But um, they've extended the second dose um, further now instead of 28 days, they've now extended it to six weeks. So it's uh, very similar to AstraZeneca where that used to be 12 weeks, then they're now getting people to shorten that time. So um, if you're in a hot spot, take your AstraZeneca if you can get your hands on it because you won't go to hospital with severe disease. Uh, some people think it's really only your own business. It's a private decision whether you get vaccinated or not. Um, can you talk about the community impacts of that kind of thinking? Look, I, I understand that kind of thinking. It's a bit like it's my body and don't mess with it. I, I, I understand that. But in the reason that we have uh, speed, speed um, um, limits is because if somebody is speeding and driving recklessly, it has an impact on their health but also ours. So their recklessness can inadvertently kill us or maim us. So um, it's the same. If you choose not to get vaccinated, not because you've got some um, health reason, but because you don't want to do something on a mandatorial basis because it's your body, well, just remember, if you acquire COVID and you don't realise that in those first few days when you're highly contagious, you could give it to an elderly person or a baby. So we have a baby now in hospital with COVID. You could give it to an elderly person and they could die. You could give it to your flatmate or your housemate and they could be one of the um, uh, uh, cases that have a rapid decline in their respiratory function and die overnight without you even knowing it. So. Do you really want that uh, on your conscience? You don't. You know you're an Australian, and Australians look after each other. I mean, we are remarkable in sticking with 
the um, the road signs. You know, sometimes we'll speed of five kilometres, but we're not reckless. We don't drink drive very often at all. We are generally really caring. We don't use firearms. We are really, really caring uh, community. And it's the same with this. So the reason that we get vaccinated for, say, whooping cough is because it's a nasty disease. Kids can die. And um, it's horrible for an adult to get whooping cough. And so we vaccinate ourselves so that we don't give it to others. There's only the occasional vaccine that we have that's just for our own health, and that's tetanus. Everything else, we get vaccinated for ourselves and to stop the spread for, for others. And this is no different. Do we have a sense of how much being vaccinated reduces the viral load? I mean, people often say, well, you know, you could be vaccinated, you can still give it to somebody else. That's a, that's a very good question. And at the moment, um, we, we believe at the moment that um, uh, if you are um, if you're vaccinated uh, against uh, COVID, in America, believes that you are much less likely to be to, to spread it, much less likely. So uh, that's that, that's um, very very helpful. So uh, let's see now. Uh, the um, Americans have recently um, in the they call it MMWR uh, morbidity mortality weekly report. I just recently said that um, those that are vaccinated are um, 29 times less likely to go to hospital and are young, are older uh, with breakthrough infection. And Singapore did a lovely study that showed that if you do catch it with breakthrough infection, that your viral load declines very rapidly after the first week of infection. So um, you're less likely to carry a high viral infectious load. So basically, first of all, you're less likely to get it in the first place. And then if you happen to get it with a breakthrough infection, you are much less likely to pass it on. Yeah. And if you get vaccinated, you're much less likely to go to hospital and um, you're much less likely to be admitted into intensive care and much less likely to die. We all hope that the vaccinated population will avoid the need for future lockdowns. And, and we see lots of different figures bandied about. I mean, is there a number that we need to get to to put lockdowns behind us? Sadly, there is, and it's not the 70 or 80% of adults. So um, that number, I believe, is erroneous because it, it comes from the Doherty model that was not around Delta, was not around the R0 for Delta. And so um, when I redid um, the herd immunity for Delta and given that kids can now catch it. So 100% of the population can now catch it. You've got to estimate the herd immunity based on the vaccine efficacy of one of the two vaccines that is offered in Australia, then the proportion of the population that will get 
either Pfizer or AstraZeneca, and then the R naught, the the you know contagious the, the transmissibility. And I came up with a a minimum of eighty percent of the total population. It's huge, preferably ninety five percent, but nobody wants to talk about that because it basically makes them feel like thinking it's all too much and we can't ever get there. So I like to think about it, about it as it's a bit like running a marathon. You know, have you got to the first um, uh, block? Have you got to the first kilometre? Have you got to the, you know, 10 kilometres? And, and one of the first groups would be, um, so I heard Barry Cassidy talk about this on television the other day. He said, we shouldn't be opening up until we're 80% of our First Nations. And I thought that was a, that's great because our First Nations are highly interconnected. They have um, often a lot of um, diabetes or respiratory illness. Um, and so protecting them would, um, would really basically protect um, collectively our First Nations because they're so highly interconnected. So it's great. But I've been calling for 80% of our 20 to 39-year-olds because they are the drivers of this infection. So First Nations, 80%, 80% of 20 to 39-year-olds. And then when we start opening up with that, rather than 70% or 80% of the 16 and over, which um, it translates to, 16 years and over are 80% of the total population. So 70% of 80% is 70 times 80 is basically 56% of the total population. So it's one in two people will not be protected. Now that's really cavalier. That is really dangerous to start opening up willy-nilly or even opening up incrementally at that level. It's far too low. But if we had 80% of the 20 to 39-year-olds and our First Nations, then what we could also be doing is augmenting it with rapid antigen tests so that you could go to work. If, um, if you hadn't been fully vaccinated yet because you just haven't had equity and access, you could do a rapid antigen test before you, you know, enter your, your workplace. Um, it comes up on an app on your phone and you can show it to your line manager. It goes straight to your line manager. You could go back to school. You could go back to university. You could go back to the lab. Um, we could be doing it in if you want to go to a restaurant um, and you haven't had the ability to get vaccinated. You could, you know, have a pop-up um, one in the shopping mall, get tested. It lasts for twenty-four hours, and go off and have a lovely dinner or go to the football. We should be able to start using rapid antigen testing. Singapore now gives. Uh, five to seven rapid antigen tests per household. UK has been giving people two a week. I would be giving it three at least. Um, the EU use them. The UK, the USA is starting to use them. And I don't understand why we are not, because when the authorities say they are not accurate, that's not entirely true. There are some highly, highly performing rapid antigen tests, there are about three or four of them, and they do perform particularly better with repeat testing. If you do two 
tests, that is um, two consecutive days, um, and they meet the same specificity and sensitivity as a PCR test. So we use a PCR test to diagnose now. And sensitivity is its ability to identify that you're truly infectious. And specificity is identifying that you are truly safe to go into that restaurant or into the football or go to work. So you're using it as a screening tool to ensure that you're safe, you're negative. So you want them to be at 100%. And if you do it every other day or every second day on the same group of staff, then, you know, it, it performs brilliantly. And yes, there will be a small proportion that may test um, falsely positive, but uh, you could go and have a, um, a confirmatory test for that. Um, for those who haven't had a chance to get fully vaccinated. So it would, because I mean, I've got a friend in London, she's fully vaccinated, but she before she goes to band practice, she goes and does one of the tests at the chemist. Um, I mean, do you see a place for people to do those tests, even if they are vaccinated, or would you reserve them for people who haven't yet been vaccinated? Well, she probably does that because at the moment they've got high circulating delta and um they're getting breakthrough. Now, most of the breakthrough infections are in the elderly because they've been vaccinated for more than six months. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a professor at my university, Miles Davenport, who did a lovely paper looking at um, the correlation between vaccine efficacy and your um, antibody levels. And they do start waning. And sure, protection is more than antibodies. It's T cells and B cells and it's quite complex. It's, you know, it's your memory of, uh, of whether or not you've been vaccinated and your know, memory cells come out fighting. But um, we could be using it on everybody if we thought there was a large um, circulating level of virus. And at the moment, I'd be saying, yeah, let's do everybody. And then when we do get 80% of the 20 to 39-year-olds, and the indigenous population, and we feel free enough that we have a low level of circulating virus, then it could just be on those that haven't been able to get vaccinated or choose not to get vaccinated. Because mm. remember, we're not going to be ever expecting zero ever again, sadly. It's just a lot to let go of. I think especially... You know, it's very recent for us in Melbourne. It's only a few days that we've let go of our donut dream. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's emotionally quite difficult. I mean, you've talked about so many, I guess, missed opportunities and things that aren't being done in the way that you think would be best practice. I mean, how are you feeling about things, Mary Louise? Like, is it is it just gutting or is it just the way things go? Like, I mean, how do you process it? Oh, look, um I am, I'm very slow to anger, but I have been very disappointed at the way the young have not been looked after um, for the rollout. It's, it's, um, it's highly inequitable. And um, I can understand that we would never be able to work in and live in that honeymoon period that we had. But I thought at least the young would be protected uh, from um, long COVID, from experiencing the feeling of being hit by a truck. 
which people describe with Delta. And so that has made me incredibly, um, yeah, gutted, um, uh, very sad, very, very sad because the young have been left behind. You know, we rolled out a vaccine uh, pattern based on compassion, which the COVAX facility framework had developed. And when I went back to WHO and said, look, our epidemiology says something different. And why can't we vaccinate the young so that they don't spread it inadvertently? WHO came back and said, member countries can do whatever they like. It's up to them what they're going to do with the allocation that WHO provides. Well, we have acquired vaccine from outside the COVAX facility framework. We have had strong epidemiological pattern. You don't need a model to show the pattern. Um, and you just have to have worked in COVID for a while or at least another outbreak previously to see young people are always the ones that, that suffer the most. And we're going to be giving you a shocking economy and climate change. So why would we not want to protect you from COVID? It just beggars belief. So, yeah, we, we love the, the elderly, but um, right now it's all about the young, I think. It's about the young, and we need to um, to prove it that we care for the young by by prioritizing you guys over every other age group. Yeah, and I mean that is the hospitality industry, and mm-hmm. to a large exactly. degree that we're talking about. I mean, something else that I think there's been there's been a huge burden placed on hospitality in terms of. Um, uh, policing compliance or, you know, or providing, a, you know, a, a COVID safe space for people to work in and to dine in. And, you know, mm. there's sanitizing, there's been postcode checks that regional restaurants have had to do, monitoring check-in, you know, dealing with all the various and often changing density and seated service requirements. I mean, one thing that people are wondering about is whether they'll also be called upon to monitor the vaccination status of their diners. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that we need to segregate the population on the basis of their vaccination status in places like restaurants? Mm. Well, uh, look, that's a, that's a really tough one because it, it's about, yes, we have a responsibility to each other. I mean, you know, where, when, as a as a community, we do care for each other. We're not as individualistically um, pushed as, say, an American culture at all. So we are more collective, but we're not completely collective. And so this requirement of a vaccine is is surprising people. Look, when I grew up, um, polio was circulating, and parents didn't blink an eyelid at at dragging you out and putting you on the footpath, waiting in the sun uh, for your turn. It was, this is what we do because we don't want my child and any other child to get polio. And since then, we've had carrot and stick for getting kids vaccinated for measles, mumps and rubella, and it's worked very well. We have um, a rate of about 94%. And this now is an adult one, and, and it's a bit surprising. We certainly need a mandatory vaccine for the health sector, for aged care sector, and uh, there are other sectors now 
deciding whether or not they'll make it mandatory. And I think that with um, with things like uh, restaurants, where eventually we're going to accept the fact that restaurants can't have uh, the full airflow change that is required of um, not building up small particles. And if that's the case, then everybody has to be vaccinated to come into a restaurant. Um, or we do keep uh, the seating at a, at a certain level of um, density. And then we use a, a rapid antigen test that you either look at somebody's vaccination or rapid antigen test certificate for the day. And that somebody who wants to come in and, and sit in a restaurant needs to have one of those. And the restaurateur needs to ensure that uh, their clients do have one of those. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope that that's not left up to individual businesses as it has been done in the mm. US where it's up to, yeah, a proprietor to make a policy for their own restaurant, which I think puts such an, it, it creates extraordinary division. I hope that, um, that the, I hope we can get to a, a place where there are very clear guidelines for yes. both customers and business owners. Well, that will be difficult because the um, approach around Australia is different. As you've seen, um, New South Wales has a different approach to uh, not going in hard and fast and going in um, more uh, a, a, a slower pace than, say, South Australia, Victoria and Queensland. So it would have it should be a national one, which it won't necessarily be. But what could happen is that um, the QR code, the, the, the one that you put your camera to, could also um, want you to then prove that you've been vaccinated or that you've got a, a, um, you know, a, a valid um, rapid antigen test mm. so that you, um, you then have to pass that, otherwise you can't get in and therefore the poor old restaurateur, you know, just has to say, look, I'm sorry, you, you don't pass the uh, the entry requirement. And when people do make a booking, they understand that, I mean, it's, it's easier if it's national. I mean, it's a bit like Australia not making it a national requirement that when you get on public transport, you need to wear a mask. Regardless of what level of um, transmission there is, because, you know, we travel around Australia very easily. We have family, we have friends, we have work. And if you've got to remember what the rule is for each state and territory, then you can be pretty sure there's not going to be um, cooperation or, or compliance. And, and, and the same with this, that there's an understanding nationally that you either have to have, uh, a, you know, fully vaccinated or a rapid antigen test for the on that day that's negative or within that 24-hour period um then you know you you're not going to be welcome in indoors i mean maybe outdoors but why wouldn't you get a rapid antigen test i mean i think that we should be able to um have them at home and you can trust people because you can link it to an app where it reads the the, the result and it then goes uh, into um, a, some sort of system where uh, you can't you can't alter 
the, the response. Mm. So we can technologically drive this where people can't really fake it. I think, I mean, you know, just having eaten out quite a bit in a few states when I was allowed to, uh, that, you know, compliance around the QR code check-in is pretty patchy. Some people are amazing mm. at it. Some people are okay at it. And some people just don't really, haven't really got on board at all. Mm. I imagine it would be the same with, um, with you know, uh, having to prove your vaccination status or, or antigen testing. But yes. I guess, you know, in a sense, it just does come back to that, that uh, hope that we do, for the most part, look after one another and care about one another and and do our best. And I suppose in terms of the different systems, I see it sort of like a driver's license. You know, each state administers its own driver's licensing, but we know that wherever you go in the country, you do need, if you're going to drive, you need a license of some sort mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can show your Victorian one in New South Wales and you'll be allowed to, you know, go along your merry way. So, I mean, there are, we do have precedents in some, in some cases for, for, a patchwork of systems that actually do get stitched together reasonably well. Yeah, and I think that um, if we if we constantly remind each other how good we are at caring for each other, it then becomes a social norm. Rather than assuming we aren't good at looking after each other, we tell each other we are so good at looking after each other. This is, this is why we do this, so that we can ease out and so that we can uh, protect um each other and keep people at work. What has concerned me is the terrible price that people who don't have a computer-based um, career or job have have been. Um, they've been basically saving the rest of us who can work at a computer and at a very high price. Not just mental health, but financial health as well. And so we really do need to be able to get back to hospitality and enjoy eating out so that people can get back to a a good life and uh, feel more confident about their future. And so we need to push the idea we do this for each other. Mm. Uh, there's one other topic I'd love to. You have touched on it on ventilation, but it, it is becoming more of a conversation around schools and workplaces and hospitality venues. What kinds of things can you imagine we might see in that area? Look, uh, ventilation is a very difficult one. I mean, if you're if you are in a building that can then spread poor ventilated air to workers such as in a corridor in a hotel quarantine system, then you do need to ensure that when you're opening the doors that somebody's not getting a face full of small particles that's built up in a hotel room. And that's what has been happening. But when you're talking about unrelated people in a classroom and then some people saying, well, why don't we have a HEPA filter? What they don't understand is the HEPA filter isn't there to protect the people in the room. A HEPA HEPA filter in a hospital is to protect people outside that infectious room so that air doesn't, when it does escape, if it does, it's not laden with virus. And in a in a ward that has a HEPA filter, it also is negative air pressure so that it doesn't escape in large quantities. So in a classroom, for example, you wouldn't bother putting a, a HEPA filter there because 
the kids are going to see each other in the playground. They're going to see each other in, in, in and share um, different classrooms when they start, particularly um, in high school, where they start going to electives and different classrooms for different different subjects. So it it doesn't work outside a hospital because you've got to have that negative air pressure. So really, the way to get kids back to school safely is um, vaccine or rapid antigen testing before they get onto the campus because Delta is so infectious that even if you had great airflow change and HEPA filters, they would be breathing in um, a virus if the kid that's infected is sitting right next to another child that hasn't had a vaccine or can't be vaccinated. So there's a lack of logic and science if they think they can put HEPA filters into classrooms. So basically, you've got to put in testing before they enter the campus to make sure that you're lowering the risk. You can't make it zero, but you lower the risk. In um, inside offices, the same issue. You can improve airflow change because you feel better when you've got more oxygen. You're happier. You're awake. Um, you don't have that, you know, uh, sad um, sad office um, syndrome uh, because it doesn't have enough ox oxygen. Um, but again, it's all about the vaccine and the and the testing negative. Um, so yeah, uh, but sitting in a in a restaurant, um, you you wouldn't need to necessarily be overly concerned about it if you've got high level of of vaccination and particularly the staff and um, your clientele. And if they can't be, then they're being tested. And if, you're, if your staff can't be vaccinated or haven't had a chance, then wearing a mask or wearing at least a face shield with all the clients coming in who have been vaccinated or tested with a rapid antigen test should reduce the risk. Won't be, won't be zero risk, but it will be a much less risk than ever before. Right. So basically to simplify it, ventilation isn't really the main thing. Like sure, it's better if you've got air blowing through. It may perhaps stop one person passing that particular, that, coughing on that particular person, but overall as a system, it's not as powerful or as useful as vaccination and testing. That's right. I mean, it was really important when we could get to zero, but you can't get to zero with Delta. You can't without vaccination. And even then with vaccination, it still manages to have breakthrough infections. They're just not as severe. They're not life-threatening. And you don't feel like you've been hit by a truck. So we do have to um, work with getting the risk down, but it's never going to be zero. It's great to have good airflow change in a restaurant so you're not spreading you know, flu um, because, sadly, I wish – young people would get more flu vaccine because flu is horrible and you won't be able to enjoy yourself and you'll have to have at least a week off work because you'll feel shocking. Um, so please get your flu vaccine as well. It's just so much easier not having the flu. Um, and yeah, airflow change is great, but it's not going to reduce 
the, the um, transmission for Delta because you've now got people developing on average up to a thousand more viral load in your respiratory tract and you're developing a high viral load early on, even before you start feeling unwell. Oh, I can't believe it's a thousand times. It's just so... Apparently, on average, a thousand times. One um, one uh, paper uh, said it was, you know, about 500,000 times. But, um, oh, look, whatever it is, it's huge. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Where does COVID go from here, Mary Louise? Um, COVID will... If, if a virus had an IQ, it wouldn't want to kill you because it, it likes to, you know, go from, from host to host, but it doesn't have an IQ. But eventually what happens is those that the, a, a virus or a, a something that kills you, we either work out how to vaccinate against it or um, it adapts um, to its hosts. So this vaccine, this, um, sorry, this virus has been adapting to its own sort of living test tube where it's learned how to get around an immune system in kids that's a beautiful and effective immune system Um, and it's worked out that kids have fewer ACE2 receptor sites than adults and so it's developed this high viral load so it can infect just everybody and so it's done it's done well what it needs to do is start playing nice and um, not cause such terrible um, infection. And what will happen is the more of us that get um, vaccinated, then we won't see this virus circulating very much at all. But we're only going to see that uh, and potentially um, a milder infection if, I don't know, the 8 billion of us I get infected at at least 70 to 80%. Now that's going to take a long, long time, particularly with vaccine nationalism in, um, in the high income countries. So there are uh, WHO, um, the, the, um, the chief, um, the uh, director general, uh, Dr. Tedros gave a talk recently that basically called out that there are about 10 highly um, vaccinated countries in the world and that really if they start travelling, they may well not be protected from uh, a a strain wherever they go travelling. They may well bring it back to their country uh, and have breakthrough infections. We really do need to start caring for all humanity on this planet and give away some of our vaccines, particularly the COVAX facility um, portion that we have in Australia. We should be giving it to Papua New Guinea, to Indonesia, to you know some of the Pacific islands that don't have enough vaccine yet so that we can see the end of this um, virus so it becomes seasonal and that we can all get vaccinated against this nasty seasonal um, infection. Yeah, well, it does seem a bit of a a long road, but I reckon we can do it. It's I reckon certainly, so too. It's certainly been a longer grind than I hoped. Um, but, yeah, 
I'm only slightly more experienced in pandemics than I was 18 months ago. Um, but I'm definitely fully vaccinated and happy to get any booster shots that uh, the experts think that I need to have to protect myself and the people around me. Um, Mary Louise, it's always such a privilege to talk to you and um, yeah, hear uh the, yeah, hear your expertise and and advice and and notes of hope as well. I think hope is so important as we you know continue to navigate our way through this. But thank you. It's a pleasure, and um, I'm looking forward to going back and eating out and enjoying life and seeing young people laugh again. So please look after yourself, and um, we'll get there. Thank you so much. Take care. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.